Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. This show is dedicated to the design of our cities and the ways in which the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Today, I'm speaking with architect and urbanist John Massengale. John knows how to fix America's neighborhoods, cities, and towns by making them walkable again. In this episode, he will share his insights on how good street design can increase happiness, unlock economic value, improve our health, and lower our carbon footprint. But before we delve into the conversation, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about my guest. John Massengale's work explores the connections between urban design, architecture, walkability, and placemaking. As, as principal at Massengale & Company and the author of three books, he has more than 25 years experience designing projects in Europe and across America and shares with his audiences innovative and proven strategies for success. His planning work spans a range of situations from suburban retrofits and designing new towns to urban infill and urban regeneration. At every scale, he emphasizes context and the importance of making places where people want to be. He is co-author with Victor Dover of Street Design, The Secret to Great Cities and Towns, and he is also the co-author with Robert A.M. Stern and Gregory Gilmartin of New York 1900, Metropolitan Architecture and Urbanism, 1890-1915, and The Anglo-American Suburb. He is a board member of the Congress for the New Urbanism, and he was previously the founding chair of the Congress for New Urbanism New York chapter. He also served as the director of the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art. In addition, Massengale has taught architecture and urban design studios at the University of Miami, the University of Notre Dame, and the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art. He holds an AB from Harvard College and a master's degree in architecture from the University of Pennsylvania. John, welcome to On Cities. I'm so happy to be speaking with you today. Thank you, Carrie. I hope I can live up to that build-up. <laughs> John, I guess we'll start at the beginning. Where were you born, and how did these early childhood experiences influence your thoughts about cities and towns? So I was born in New York City. I had an older sister, and when I was about six months old, my parents moved to a little three-bedroom house in the Connecticut suburbs that they bought with a VA loan. And uh, when my younger brother came along seven years later, we moved again to a different part of the town. So that was a suburban experience before there was sprawl. My mother didn't expect to drive me anywhere. I walked and I rode my bike, and later I took the school bus, and sometimes, of course, they drove me. Now, my grandparents lived year-round in Maine, and I went to visit them in the summer. Uh, parents were a lot less protective then. My parents would put me on the train to Boston when I was about 10 years old, and they would find a conductor who would take me from South Station to North Station in Boston, and then put me on the train to Maine. It was an all-day trip. My grandparents lived in a classic Maine house from the late 18th, early 19th century of the type state of Mainers or maniacs, described as little house, big house, back house, barn. Everything connected to deal with the cold weather. The house looked out over a pond created by a dam. My grandfather called the house dam site and said it cost a dam site more than it should have. Anyway, my grandmother took me to see old New England towns and old New England houses, and I loved them. She also gave me books about New England architecture. And that set up something that's been an important part of my life ever since, which is a love of New England and a love of New York, especially New York City. The love of New York came because at, the, at that time, my uh, parents in my town allowed kids to take the train into New York by themselves when they were 11. And I took the train in and I would arrive at Grand Central Terminal, one of the magnificent train stations in the world. And 
You know, it was like Dorothy arriving in Oz. G. Toto were not in the Connecticut suburbs anymore. Grand Central is on 42nd Street, and my father worked on the corner of Madison Avenue and 57th Street. So I had boundaries. I had to stay in the rectangle between 42nd and 57th, and between 5th Avenue and Lexington Avenue. And that's the heart of the traditional Manhattan Midtown. I would walk around, look at the buildings, buy magazines in the Pan Am building, and just amuse myself all day. I'd usually meet my father at his office and go home with him at the end of the day. It was great. Grand Central Terminal is one of the best American classical buildings from that time when every large American city had at least one office with graduates from the Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris. New York had many of those offices, including McKinley and White, who were probably the greatest architects in the history of America, and Carrere and Hastings. Carrere and Hastings worked for McKinley and White before going out on their own, as did Whitney Warren, the architect of Grand Central. And those three firms did a lot of buildings around uh, Grand Central, which was built over the railroad yard the Midtown Railroad Yard. And so I, I got to know those quite well. And Greer um, and Hastings designed another of the greatest buildings from that time, the New York Public Library, just two blocks away on the corner of 42nd and 5th Avenue. Well, you know, that sounds like a um, beautiful way to grow up. Um, and as I was listening to you, I noticed, or I think something that underscores this description is a sense of freedom, you know, and I think this show is ultimately about the design of our cities um, and how, depending upon the ways in which the context of our physical environment is designed, it can afford us either greater freedoms or less. And so when you were uh, seen as a young boy kind of being alone on that train, right? I think a lot of parents today would be very apprehensive about this, but actually there are parts of the world that this still exists. I, I remember my first visit to Tokyo, for instance, I was I was blown aback how, you know, four and five-year-old children um, were in a way protected by the society. The society itself cared for the children, but they were riding in the underground metros uh, of Tokyo uh, in the one of the densest cities in the world by themselves. So, I think there's a confluence between the design of the physical world and the degree of freedom and experience that we have within it. Um, and that shouldn't be undermined. So uh, thank you for, for sharing that. Um, you know, something I, I learned from your former guest and your former dean, Liz Plater-Zyberg, is that psychiatrists think a very important moment is the moment when you step out the front door of your house uh, for the first time. And, you know, are you allowed to go out into the neighborhood or are you getting into the car because your mother is going to drive you somewhere? And we really, um, you know, most Americans now grow up in the, in sprawl and um, it makes a big difference. Mm. You know, when do you gain independence? Yeah, I think what you're talking about is how those early childhood experiences create within you a sense of freedom and independence, right? And uh, I think we're going to be talking a lot more about that because I think it influences um, much of the work that you've dedicated yourself to in trying to really make American cities more walkable again. And I don't, I have a feeling it isn't just because of the beauty of the physical environment that those spaces and places create, but also the kind of lifestyle and the kind of individuals that can be shaped within those environments. So um, before though, delving into your work, I would, and I've asked this of many of my guests, because, uh, again, I, I believe that anyone who achieves any level of success does so with the help of guides, teachers, even mentors. So I was curious, John, who have been your greatest mentors and what lessons did they teach you? So I combine places and people, sort of as we were talking about. Um, I mentioned New England and my grandmother. I also have to mention my father, who was a mensch, and my mother, who was an art historian. And right up to the authors of literature and history and architectural history, I did a lot of reading when I was a kid. My parents always valued reading and learning, and that rubbed off on me. And later for me, um, new urbanists like Liz and her husband, Andres Buani, um, 
were big influences. But my list is long. One of the influences that New England led me to was the founding of American democracy. I value the Declaration of Independence and the American Constitution. And I don't want to pe see people wipe those away today as, as you know, some people are trying to do. Um, I believe in the saying that Martin Luther, Martin Luther King picked up from Reverend Theodore Parker, who said it a hundred years earlier in Massachusetts, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. So backing up a little, when I arrived at graduate school, I'd spent two years working and studying in Europe, uh, plus an undergraduate year at Berkeley as a freshman in architecture and three years at Harvard studying architecture and art history. And I left Berkeley because I had a good sense of what I wanted to do. And my teachers at Berkeley more or less said, that's not architecture. We'll show you what architecture is. And then they would show me, you know, the building we were sitting in, which I thought was terrible, which was named after the former dean. And what I thought were ugly buildings and bad urbanism. And I'd begun to understand how important the arrangement of buildings was. And realizing that I like traditional city streets and traditional small town streets and traditional and classical buildings. So I arrived at graduate school and what was a good time for me? Good for me because the postmodern debate was just getting going and students were questioning their education and the modernist principles of architecture and urbanism that dominated architectural education. And for me specifically at the University of Pennsylvania, I was at a place where the school's guru had just died, leaving the school in a state of flux and disarray. The guru, of course, was Lucan whose full name was Louis Icahn or Louis Icahn. And as an applicant to the school, I received a school catalog with big black X's across the pages that described Khan's special master's program at TED. Um, and so it was an unusual place and a good place to question things. Um, the jury for one of my studios included three teachers who were close to Khan. And there was a lot of talk about what Lou would have done. And at one point, one of my professors jumped up and declared, I loved Lou. And a woman on the jury said, love him. I had his baby, which was true. If you watch the great movie, My Architect, made by one of Lou Khan's children, you will see Ann Ting, an interesting professor at Penn and the mother of another of Khan's children. So, most of the students and some of the faculty were interested in postmodernism and alternatives to modernism. And um, there was a Belgian architect named Maurice Coulot who started a publishing project of publishing these new ideas. And my first year, I think, a book came out called, um, it, was, he, it was a bilingual book. It was called Rational Architecture Rationnelle, or maybe rational architecture rationnelle that was really a big influence on us, mainly because it had Leon Creer's wonderful plan for La Violette, which had practically every element of new urbanism in it, uh, four years before Seaside. And there was a mail-order remainder bookstore in Princeton that was selling reprints of civic art, the American Vitruvius by Hegman and Peets for $1. And so, um, we were all looking at historic planning and then going into the library and finding books that literally had not been taken off the shelf for decades. I, I mean, they had dust on the town. Uh, there's a story about Robert Venturi, who was, of course, very important at that time, uh, who went to Princeton College and then to graduate school at Princeton, and Charlie Moore, who was the same age, who had who, but who arrived at the graduate school a year or two later. And um, libraries had cards in the back of the books then to track when the book was taken out, when it was due, and the person taking the book out would sign the book. The story goes that Charlie Moore went to the Princeton Library and went through the stacks shelf by shelf, taking every book off the shelf, looking at the cards, and if Robert Venturi had signed the book out, he, uh, Charlie Moore would take the book out. And I, I bring that up because 30 years later at Penn, 
it was we were having a similar time. We were just going into the library, seeing what we could find. And quite a few members of the faculty didn't like that. Um, one of the former deans who had an important position in the library threw out some rare antique uh, books. A classmate of mine found an original edition of the Edifice de Rome Modern, an early 19th century catalog of many Italian Renaissance buildings. At one semester, I took a studio from the visiting professor, Robert A.M. Stern. I took a summer job with Bob and stayed for five years. He was a force of nature and I learned a lot from him. Uh, when he published his memoir last year, I wrote about my experience on my blog, blog.massingale.com and a common edge. And maybe we could put those links somewhere where people can find them. Um, so I, I left Bob's office every five years. Uh, and I can say that I wish I had found an office like my father's law firm, which was Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton and Garrison known as Paul Weiss. They're a group of high-minded men who absolutely loved the law. Some of them went to Ivy League colleges, some of them went to City College in New York, which is free, and lots of other places. And they had Supreme Court judges and a presidential candidate, and it was a great place where they were happy to be. Between the partners and the associates and the staff, there were hundreds of people there. And yet when you went in, it was always calm because they absolutely knew what they were doing. They didn't think greed was good. Law and ethics guided their work. Their clients were lucky to have them. And I always wished I could find a place like that. The equivalent for me would have been if Duane Plater Zyberg, Mullen Palazzoides, Dover Colvin Partners, and other leaders from the Congress for New Urbanism had all been in one office where I was a partner. But then I have to say part of the pleasure of new urbanism, which has been a very big part of my life, has been working around the country with these people and meeting other people around the country. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, for those in the audience that are less familiar with this history that you're describing, because it's kind of window into the world of architecture and the design of cities, um, probably in the late 70s, is that while... Um, well, uh, the contemporary or the modern movement produced some extraordinary individual buildings, I think in the end, the assessment was that it had failed the city, right? Because it was um, a love affair with, let's say, the object. And I think that the critique of the time, the 1970s, certainly with people like Leon Creer and others that you mentioned, uh, was a return to thinking about the city, thinking about the collection of buildings rather than the individual object. And so um, I think that that's a kind of legacy that continues till this day. And maybe um, we could segue into think talking about your own work, in fact, um, which when I looked at your website, it opens with the following passage, place, um, and I'm quoting it, places at the heart of everything John Massengale designs, from cities and streets to buildings and rooms. So you were dedicated to making places where people want to be. Um, John, how would you define place? Well, when, when Victor and I wrote Street Design, uh, I shared an office in New York with my friend and colleague, Johnny Longo. And thanks to Johnny, we say right in the beginning of the book, that a space is not a place unless there are people there. Uh, and I, sh I should add that the intro to, to the show, the Own Cities intro, is excellent. And um, directly and indirectly, it says a lot about place, slightly modifying Winston Churchill's famous saying, we shape our places, our buildings, cities, and streets, and thereafter they shape us. For me, you know, the experiences I had in Maine and New York and Europe and around America determined what I wanted to do. And um, I wanted to take the feelings and the places that made me feel the best and incorporate them in my work. And I think that's what Jane Jacobs did in Death and Life, uh, the great American city. Um, I think that's why postmodernism started, which um, uh, what you said is absolutely true. It, it also it was the start of modern classicism also. Um, but, you know, this this feeling for place and experience, that's why New Urbanists became New Urbanists and founded the CNU. There's a very interesting 
TED Talk by a brain researcher at Harvard named Jill Taylor Bolt. After many years of research, she suffered a stroke and was severely incapacitated. As a brain scientist, she was able to observe this and analyze it even when she was still unable to speak. And here's, here's what she says about that time. Our right hemisphere is all about this present moment. It's all about right here, right now. Our right hemisphere thinks in pictures and it learns kinesthetically through the movement of our bodies. Information in the form of energy streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory system. And then it explodes into this enormous collage of what this present moment looks like. What this present moment smells like and tastes like and what it feels like and what it sounds like. I'm an energy being connected to the energy all around me through the consciousness of my right hemisphere. We are energy beings connected to one another through the consciousness of our right hemispheres. And right here, right now, we are all here to experience this world. Now that sounds pretty woo-woo, but modern physics and neuroscience are moving in her direction. We know now that it's not just our brain and our eyes that give us information about the world around us, but it's our bodies, our gut, and our hearts, too. And of course, we've said that throughout history. What does your gut say? Trust your heart. All, you know, all those sayings that you turn to in times of crisis. So when Taylor lost the connection to the left side of her brain, which is linear and logical, she also lost connection to worry about the past and the future. Her brain forced her to be in the present where her surroundings flooded her senses with information about the world around. And, um, you know, throughout my life, I've just like enjoyed good rooms and good streets and good cities and good parks and, uh, and of course nature. So that's a long answer about place. Well, I, I thought that was a, a very beautiful answer. And um, it makes me think that, uh, this might be a good time to take a short break because when we return, John is going to talk to us about his wonderful book, the book that he co-authored with Victor Dover, Street Design, The Secret to Great Cities and Town. He's going to share with us more than 150 examples of streets, and it's going to uh, guide us to really what works and what doesn't work, not only in street design, but in the creation of places. And based on your last answer, I'm also curious to know if there's a way that you could describe the characteristics that you feel um, make good places and spaces that ultimately impact our experience, right? Um, maybe experiences that allow us to react with our hearts and our emotions as much as with our intellect. So do not miss uh, the second half of this conversation. We will be right back. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. 
Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with architect and urbanist John Massingale. Before the break, we were talking about the importance of place in the development of his work. And now I'd like to delve into your uh, wonderful book, the book that you co-authored with Victor Dover entitled Street Design, The Secret to Great Cities and Towns. John, your book compiles more than 150 examples of streets, and through it, you guide readers to what works and what does not work in street design. So given your research and your professional experiences, what would you say are the key elements of great street design? So going back to the beginning of the book, um, how do we make streets where people want to be? And, you know, the basics are really pretty simple. Um, sometimes walking around New York City, which, you know, New York City has a grid of streets as dumb as a grid can be. Um, I will turn down a block which is because it's a grid, it's like hundreds of other blocks. And it, I'll just think, you know, it's so easy to make a good street, you know, and, and what makes me say that in those cases, and I'll, I'll usually tweet it, is it's a straight street. It has trees that line up, that bring nature in. It has uh, buildings with good materials that are simple and usually repetitive and, um, those line up and the the proportion is right. And um, in general, we, we focus on four things. The streets have to be comfortable, they have to be safe, they have to be interesting, and they have to be connected. The, the last part meaning part of a network of streets with useful stores and places you can walk to because of the connected network. Interesting, is the most interesting part, and it has many aspects. Uh, beauty is interesting, and we know that people like to walk in beautiful places like St. Mark's Square in Venice and the left bank of Paris. And we love to feel surrounded of people, surrounded by people, and we love to watch our fellow human beings. And a, a new study shows that people talking on a sidewalk will stand in front of an attractive storefront rather than a black blank wall even if their backs are to the storefront. Um, we know that the enclosure of the space matters. A continuous street wall is good. The height of the building to the width of the street matters. Simple proportions like one to one and one to half to one feel good. If the street is three times as wide as the buildings are tall, the street falls apart. Um, and uh, a good width for a street is 85 feet or less because then you can see the faces of people on the other side. And of course, there are good streets that are wider than that or that don't have continuous street walls. And then we can use um, street trees to shape the space. Uh, there are many beautiful suburban, old, or let's say instead of suburban, there are many beautiful small town streets like that with single family houses. Um, beautiful Parisian boulevards at a much higher density uh, depend on their trees to fill in the width of the very wide streets. And, um, or a street like the Rambla in Barcelona. Um, so, of course, we spend a lot of the book going into greater details. Uh, we have a we have a list of the, the seven functions of the um, urban street tree, 
uh, how to plant a sweet tree and uh, how to choose a sweet tree and things like that. So just to kind of recap, um, I heard you say that it's really four kind of key elements. And I think sometimes the, the, the question of comfort, I think you addressed in sort of dimensional criteria, right? Where you're talking about proportions. And for those in the audience that are less familiar with this, I think when John refers to like a one by one proportion, it means that the height of the overall buildings is let's say 50 feet and the width of the street is 50 feet. Um, and then as build as streets get wider, then buildings get taller. But after a certain point, then the scale of the pedestrian can sometimes be lost. And what I what I find interesting about what you're saying is that I think a lot of this experience is gained through experiential learning, through actually walking the streets that you mentioned. And in many instances, knowing uh, both your work and also knowing Victor through measurements, measuring um, these streets, right? Almost uh, kind of in a technical manner. Um, and I think that that is uh, more and more important uh, when being able to codify these recommendations. And I think for um, not just overall listeners, but even students of architecture, I think it's incredibly important to have experience um, in acquiring knowledge through experience, not only through textbooks or, or digitally, right? To be able to then determine which spaces really um, does one feel a certain way. And I think that that's not to undermine, of course, you know, other ways of learning, but I think experience is key. And we know that when we feel a certain way, the memory of those places and the power of those places stay with us much longer. So I guess what I'm advocating for is really more experiential learning to be able to acquire the knowledge that you've been able to put together in this wonderful book. Um, <clears throat> so you talked about like some of the... Um, you know, things that we want to aspire to when, we, when we're designing streets. Um, but I also wonder if you could um, maybe tell us in terms of best practices, what do you consider, and I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here, John, but what would you experience, what, what would you say are your top three streets in the world? If you could be transported right now, anywhere in the world, where would you want to be walking? You know, it's very hard to whittle that list down. Um, I'm going to start with, and this is another thing we say in the book, even though it's not a street. You know, when you walk into the uh, St. Mark's Square, Piazza San Marco in Venice, nobody has to tell you it's beautiful. Everybody knows it's beautiful. And the same thing when you walk around the square and you look out towards the Palladian Church and uh, the light and the the light on the particular materials in Venice and all those things um, are important. And we find on New Urban Charettes, um, it's very common to give people a map and um, a set of colored pencils and they walk around the town and they mark places that make them feel good and places that make them feel bad. And you get a very large, you know, um, Architects like uh, Corbusier like to say beauty is in the eye of the beholder because they want to do something um, that some people might not like. Uh, but we find in these, um, when people walk around their own town, there's a huge uh, correspondence between all the people, where, what they think is good, what they think is bad. Um, but to get to get to your list of streets, um, I'm going to talk about the street I live on, which is Riverside Drive in New York City, which was built by um, Frederick Law Olmsted, a great landscape architect. And um, we did, I, I hadn't yet moved to Riverside when we wrote the book, and it's not in the book. Um, but it's really been a great lesson for me, and I'll try to describe um, some of the lessons. First of all, um, Riverside Drive is the western edge of Manhattan, on the upper west side of Manhattan, facing uh, Riverside Park and the Hudson River. And um, there were several plans for 
what was called Riverside Avenue. Um, a couple of them were going to be just extend the grid one more, um, one more block to the west. And that was going to be very expensive because this is a hilly part of Manhattan. And it was going to require a lot of grading. And um, so coming off his success in Central Park, which he won by competition, um, the city hired uh, Olmsted to design Riverside Drive. And he immediately said, well, I'm going to annex, I'm going to combine the drive and the park. He said, the park is too steep and it's not a good park. Uh, and the hills are too steep and they're, and they're hard for carriages to go up and down. I'm going to combine them and instead of having to regrade, I'm going to use the topography to make um, um, places where carriages can go for a Sunday drive, uh, which I think I have it right. I think that's one in 11 is the slope so that every, every foot you go up, you go forward 11 feet. And, um, and that's why Riverside Drive sometimes is on the grid and sometimes is off the grid. And it runs from um, 72nd Street. It starts at 72nd Street and runs originally up to 125th Street, where there's a big um, natural um, ravine. And later they extended it, but his design went up to 125th. And um, starting at the beginning, at 72nd, where it was quite flat, uh, he he made uh, Riverside Drive straight and it's attached to the park and it has a normal sidewalk on the east side of the street and on the west side it has what he called a promenade that weaves in and out of the park and sometimes it's on the street sometimes it's on the park um, he kept the very flat land there which um, put the rail, there's a, there's a railroad down along the river. And um, he used, he used the, the flat uh, plateau to mask the railroad. And then the land naturally goes down. And um, as, I, as, as it goes down, the promenade, as I said, goes in and out of the park. And when it arrives at the bottom of the hill, which is 79th Street, um, you discover that every time Riverside Drive goes, changes either slope or direction, um, it does it at a street. In other words, um, um, when, it, when Riverside Drive reaches 79th Street and then starts going uphill, it, it goes off to the right. And um, at that point, um, the promenade comes back onto the street and there's a long stone wall because Riverside Riverside Park, as he said, was quite hilly. And so there's a big drop off. And um, there's a wonderful promenade that looks out over the park and um, the street goes up and down. And when he gets to, um, where is he? When he gets to, um, 89th Street, there's another plateau, and he made the promenade uh, becomes a big plaza with uh, city beautiful monuments. And then it goes around something called the Bowl, which is a beautiful natural uh, bowl in the landscape. And the street curves around it. And then the street, there's a steep hill and the street goes down. And he introduces something he called the island which was an island is um, a small uh, piece of greenery, a small green island that um, takes up the slope between the, the buildings and the drive going downhill so that you have the large drive, the island taking up the slope and then the little drive um, which is where the buildings are. And the island becomes like the front yard for the building. And um, 
John, to, to interject there, I think in listening to you describe that street, which you know well, because obviously you live on yeah. the street, I think you point to a number of things that make for great urban experiences. I mean, I think you talk about variety. Um, you talk ultimately about landscape and the way it's beautifully stitched, not only into the grid, but it, you know, reconciles um, the adjacent um, uh park and then you spoke about materiality you mentioned stone you know and that sort of that first three feet of the streetscape what it is that you run your fingers across or what it is that you experience um you also talked about monuments you know so it's the scale of buildings and key points that are um that punctuate that sequence so i think i think uh for our listeners it's important you know the next time you step out your door and you walk on your street or you think about what are your favorite streets ask yourself um do i find these experiences in my own environment and if you do it's likely that the experience will conjure up a series a series of feelings and emotions that you're describing now um, but i want to make sure that we can actually get to speak a little bit about your uh, projects because you've been uh critical of contemporary let's say infrastructural design which really ignores the pedestrian experience but you have also pointed out that in the 21st century we're beginning to remake the streets as places where people may want to get out of their cars and walk and bike again um, as such you are an advocate for what i believe you've termed i don't know if you coined the term slow new york so I was wondering if you could share what this means with our listeners and if, if you could elaborate on your project for a car-free Brooklyn Bridge. Yes. So you can either make a city for cars or you can make a city for people. And um, if they're, they're, the streets in those two cities are going to be very different. And of course... Any old city like New York um, goes back to before the car. Uh, we used so that those you do find in the debates going on now. Some people will say streets are made for cars. Well, you know, no, they weren't. Think of a think of like the movie The Godfather, and you know, with all the carts out in the street on Mulberry Street. Um, and now um, we know that. Americans are the biggest contributors to climate change. And our biggest contribution, not only by ourselves, but to the world, are the way that we reinvented America as a place where everyone drives everywhere. And um, there's a, um, in contrast to Riverside Drive, uh, a traffic engineer will design the street as what Victor calls the continuous section that it it's actually if you look at the manual there's just one little piece of the street which is a section and you take that section and you roll it out all the way uh, from one end of the street to the other and it's um it's why traffic engineers say uh, the devil's in the details because it's hard to fit that section into existing streets sometimes and it's why designers say God is in the details because you could do things like uh, Olmsted and you know Riverside Drive changes constantly. And so it's a street that's both good for cars and good for people. And now, um, you know, what to do with our cars, what to do with climate change after the the hottest month in history is a big issue and um it's interesting in manhattan because the 75 um, percent of the people in manhattan live in a household without a car and yet we have a department of traffic that spends billions of dollars to encourage people to drive in and out and even though we're getting congestion pricing to somewhat temper that in next year we still spend billions of dollars to encourage people to drive in and out and um, so one thought I had when I was working on a project downtown for something called the Financial District Neighborhood Association um, was to make Brooklyn Bridge car-free because there are 17 car crossings on the East River 
uh, on the east side of Manhattan, and there are three on the west side of Manhattan. And you just you don't need 17. And we're we're officially trying to cut traffic. And the um, the project for downtown Manhattan was a project where the the residents wanted fewer cars, slower cars, um, more walkable streets. And, you know, I realized at one point that the Brooklyn Bridge, because my office is down there looking over it, the Brooklyn Bridge just pumps cars into the city. It's like a fire hose pumping water. And all day on the on the 14th floor of my building, we listened to sirens down below of fire trucks and ambulances trying to get through this traffic jam that doesn't need to exist. And um, so the Brooklyn Bridge across, of course, is, you know, one of the great icons of New York City. It's an incredible structure. Uh, you can walk out on it. It's a fantastic view of the harbor and city. And there's a bike path and there are people and they sometimes have to close one or the other because there's just too many people. So the obvious thought was, you know, why don't we stop pumping the cars in? And uh, we did a design where the south side of the bridge was all for people uh, uh, walking, jogging. The north side of the bridge was all for cycling. And um, it, uh, it was just such an easy thing to do. I mean, with a few uh, bollards, with a few orange cones and some Jersey barriers, we could do it tomorrow. We could turn the, the Brooklyn Bridge into a car-free place. And it would instantly become, I think, the most popular tourist destination in New York City, uh, more popular than the High Line. It's near the, um, uh, it's near Ground Zero, which is a very popular tourist destination. It's quite close to Ground Zero. Um, all the, um, uh, Brooklynites who commute to New York on bicycle in the morning or walk across in the morning next to, you know, all these noisy, polluting cars, um, would have such a fantastic experience and, and just overnight it would be swamped with people and people would commute and tourists would watch it and um so that's part of what what i call slow new york which is you know slow new york down uh, make new york slow um and it's, of course it relates to slow food and cheetah slow and yeah. um and it partly um came from there's a many cities have groups and new york has one ours is called move new york and i thought you know we've got enough people moving new york let's slow it down well i think that um you know knowing how difficult city bureaucracies can be um i don't know how easy it would be to um get traction on an idea like that one although i think experientially it would be an extraordinary um contribution, but maybe you could do what other cities have done like Bogota and others where they do this as a kind of test. They do it on a day, one day, you know, and then, you know, when enough people have that experience, then, you know, it sort of takes off. Um, and I think just looking at a, a similar situation through a different lens allows us to create new um, experiences for all. So I'm hoping that the idea can gain some traction. Um, so what do you have on the boards now? John? So we're doing the expanded paperback of street design. We're adding 100 pages. And um, one thing we're talking a lot is um, talking a lot about is um, relevant to what you just said. Of um, We wrote street design 10 years ago. We, Victor and I went to Europe together and traveled around the country together. And we were somewhat surprised to find uh, places like Paris that streets we remembered as great places, like the like the Boulevard Saint Michel with all the great historic cafes, um, were traffic clogged, you know, DMZs 
that quickly chased us away from those streets into the smaller streets. But also at that time, we went to Amsterdam, uh, and Amsterdam in the 1970s, like every American city and like Paris, had lots of car problems. And they started fighting back, and they they now have um, 85% of the streets in Amsterdam or what's called shared space. John? Yep. I'm so sorry to interrupt here. I just realized we have about three minutes left in this conversation. I want to make a plug for the book. Um, the original was amazing. And I think that the new paperback version with the extended um, examples is going to be a must read for all. But before I end this conversation, I need to ask you yes. um, in about a minute, John, and what is your favorite city and why? So that's easy. Uh, it's New York City. Um, you know, we're, for the book, I'm hoping to go to uh, Europe and write a more popular book about what's going on in Europe and how they're getting rid of cars, especially in Paris. And um, and I hope to go for a long time and I'm going to have a great time. But I love New York City. You know, I care about New York City. I can endlessly amuse myself walking around New York City. And... Um, you know, I watch a TV show and I think, oh, there's that building on 23rd Street. And this, New York is my city. And one of the things I like about New York, as you can tell from the beginning of this, is it's so easy to get to New England. And Absolutely. Absolutely. And as a native New Yorker, I would um, I would agree with that choice. Um, so thank you, John. Thank you for taking time to speak with me today. Thank you for your work um, as an architect, as an urbanist, an author, an educator um, in trying to make our cities more walkable uh, places where people want to be. Um, and next week, I will be joined by acclaimed architect Nader Tarani, former dean of the Cooper Union School of Architecture and principal of the award-winning firm NADA, based in Boston and New York City. Um, if you enjoyed this conversation, please follow us on On Cities podcast on Instagram, um, and you can all listen to all previous episodes on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again, John, and I will connect with everyone again next week. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week.